Good evening. Yeah, my name is Duke Bendix. I'm on staff here at Grace Covenant. I too had a birthday. And I don't think I'm going to be in uh, youth, young, young adults either. So, uh, um, I want to. Uh, first of all, we have baptisms tonight, and I just want to say that anybody who wants to come out on a night like this and get wet. Blessings upon you. I know God will abundantly meet you, and we are going to have a wonderful time both uh, celebrating with you and witnessing the, uh, just the, the affirmation, the proclamation that you make when you're baptized, and we will touch maybe a little more on that a bit later. For right now, uh, I want to uh, really kind of take up where Pastor Jim Critcher left off two weeks ago. We are going to be kind of digging out of things, digging in things out of the book of Ephesians tonight and for the next two weeks. So we're, we did this. Ephesians was our baseline for uh, our fast. Those of you who joined us in that, you know we were looking at Ephesians and drawing different uh, uh, insights, perspectives out of that that was informing our prayer. And so tonight I want to take and look at some aspect of Ephesians here uh, with a view toward uh, uh, drawing out some things that I trust will be helpful, give us understanding. A few weeks ago, again, Pastor Jim ministered on Sunday, first Sunday in January, from groaning to glory. And he spoke of the change process to be encountered that we will be encountering this next year. He wasn't specific, but it doesn't take much to read between the lines that he was saying God is coming to do some things among us and do some things in us. And his prophetic word was really to give a, make us aware of that and recognize when they come what is going on and be, be welcoming to what the Spirit of God wants to do. Uh, starting out, he emphasized the importance of our being clear about our identity in Christ, for he made the point that transformation in our lives proceeded from our identity or our identification with Christ. Identification brought about or was the lead-in to transformation. It's important what it, that it, it's important rather that we know what it means to be in Christ. We're more familiar with the notion, I think, of Christ in us, but our being in Christ may be harder to explain and maybe to understand. We read it all the time in the New Testament. We're in Christ. We're in Christ with this. We're in Christ here. We're in Christ. And I think the thing that it's good sometimes to step back and say, well, what does that mean? And this evening, I hope to put a little bit of light on what our identification with Christ involves and how it relates to our being radically changed. Um, God had to take initiative to save us. Aren't you glad for an initiative-taking God? If he hadn't taken initiative, we would have remained in the condition that we were in. God had to take initiative to save us, to bring us from death to life, from darkness to light. And he did so not by working a fix, trying to work a fix with something that was broken. He, he, he did, he took initiative not simply to create something that we in our own will, in our own strength, in our own understanding 
would somehow find our way into, and then if we found our way into it in the right way, then we would begin to find his salvation. No, the approach that God did is that he brought forth an entirely new creation through Jesus Christ. He brought forth a new creation in Jesus Christ. And what I want us to just take a few minutes to look at are what the implications of that is and how we relate to that. So Ephesians, the second chapter, the first three verses, tell us what our condition is in Christ. And some of this may be review, but I find that it's always good to go back and look at where I started from. And to take a good, careful re-examination with where I started from and what God has done to bring about the change that he's brought about in my life and what he's bringing about in all of our lives. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Did you ever think of yourselves as a devil follower? That's what that's saying. Following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In that condition, we were captive, we were enslaved, we were blind, we were completely unaware of our condition, and we were certainly unaware of our jeopardy. We were in dire straits and had no idea. We were blissfully unaware. I don't know about you, but I did not spend a lot of time thinking uh, uh, about my condition until God began to get a hold of me. And up to that point, I I was just exactly like what Paul's describing here. We were under the wrath of God. We were condemned men and women awaiting our execution. We were living on death row and didn't know it. Yet, and this is the thing that's so interesting, is at the beginning of Ephesians, Paul gives a revelation that God, before the foundation of of the world, chose people that he intended to make his own. And he not only chose them to belong to him, but then he, just, he determined that they would come to be adopted as his children so that they could enter into the inheritance of his beloved son. And all of this was done before anything else had occurred. And now God has a problem. Well, he didn't have a problem. He's got a situation that he needs to address. We were chosen. God had taken initiative toward us, choosing us to belong to himself, and yet look at where we were. See, God didn't choose you to belong to him after you believed in him. I read a fascinating article by John Piper the other day. It was tremendous. Before you believed, you belonged. It was because you belonged to God that you came to believe. And he was the one who directed the path. He was the one who made the way. He was the one who intercepted and intersected us in our death, in our death, and in our blindness and in our darkness. 
God had taken initiative toward us already, choosing us to belong to himself. He had revealed his intent that, he would, that we should be adopted as sons, as I said. Ephesians 2, 4, 6. So, he, so he, he, we're in this situation just described in the first three verses of the second chapter. And now, look what God's response. Look what God's action were, was to this. I love this. But God. We were this way. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. See, that gives a different angle on the love with which he loved us. It was a love he'd had for us for a very long time. And now he came seeking. Now he came looking. Now he came to apprehend, to lay hold upon, and to bring us out. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to this, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. First, notice as I've said already, the great conjunction, but God, but God. All other realities, all circumstances, conditions, or failures are subject to being brought into conformity to God's will, his design, and his purpose. He will make it line up with what he wants, even our condition before we ever even knew him. Notice the actions that God took on our behalf. He quickened. He raised us up. He seated us with Christ. Now I'm, my, my guess is we, we go past those words pretty quick. And one of the reasons is, is because, and what I want to do is just step back and say, what are the implications of what's being described here? These actions were taken toward Jesus Christ. Picture Christ in the tomb. God quickened Jesus Christ and brought him back to life. He was really dead. As a man, he was truly dead. God quickened him, raised him up so that he proceeded out of the tomb, and then ultimately sat him at the right hand of the Father. This is exactly in Christ. Said having, well, let me go back in my notes, having been quickened, we were raised with Christ. God, in the resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that quickened him back to life, that same power and life was breathed into us when we were in our dead condition. We too were quickened. The reality of Christ's resurrection power was brought to bear in our lives by God. Christ's life, life now lived beyond the grave, life so powerful it literally threw off death, that life was ministered to us so as to make us alive. We live spiritually. Now, I'm talking about your physical life. Take it from me, we're all vulnerable in our physical lives. 
But when it comes to spiritual life, our life is rooted in that reality which is beyond the grave in the one Jesus Christ who has trans- gone past the grave. He's overcome death. He stands on the other side of death. And in doing so, he has created something brand new. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians labors this same theme, but he talks in terms of new creation. In Christ, it's not so much that we're new creatures, we've entered into a new creation. And that is what is being described as being affirmed by Paul here in the second chapter as regarding us. Having been quickened, we were raised up with Christ. With him, we were brought out of the tomb of our own worldly existence, our bondage to sin and death. Joined to Christ in his resurrection, we now live beyond death ourselves. Now, the reason why this is so hard is because most of the time we live under a shadow of the darkness of this world and this age, and the reason why it's so important to come back and affirm the truth like we're doing tonight is to say, believer, brother, sister, wake up. Let the light shine on you. It's uh, What is it? Romans, I think it says that. Wake up and let us reaffirm what it is that God has done for us, what it is that we have been born into, what God has brought us into. In Christ, we share in a new creation. In Christ, we are partakers of the new creation that is testified to by Jesus Christ who, who now stands beyond the pale of death. That is what we live from now. We have been made alive to the reality and fullness of heaven. John 3 says if you've been born again, you receive the kingdom of heaven. See, we've been born again to a new reality, to something that transcends this one. And that's what we are, in being joined to Christ, we are now partakers of that. The heaven that will one day fill all of this temporal world has been opened up to us through our resurrected Lord. This is what he was doing when he was walking and healing people and breaking the bread and walking on the water. And he was saying, he was making this incredible declaration, the kingdom, the reality of heaven is now present here in earth. And by our being joined with him and being in him, we are now partakers of that reality. But see, we look at that and we said, how in the world does this work? And that's why I'm holding this forth for us tonight is to say we we have an opportunity to figure it out. To walk in it, to live in it, to begin to ask God, show us what does it mean to be in you in such a way that heaven becomes more of a reality more of something that shapes my expectation, that my being in you gives me both a hope, a confidence, an assurance that no matter how hard or dark or empty it seems to be, I know that I am related to you in a way that goes beyond all the darkness and and everything else. And this is what we're rooted in. This is what we are to drink from. Well, let me get on here with with what my point that I'm getting at. Notice the tense of these words. Now, I'm going to get burrowed down into this a little bit. What tense are these words in? We've been quickened. 
We've been raised up. We've been seated. These things are all in the past tense. All expressing something that has already been done. They indicate what God has done and the result of his action. Now our part, we entered into these things that God has done by one simple thing. How did we enter in? What? By faith. We entered in by faith. And Paul even says, goes on to say, and even this was a work of grace. This not from your own doing. It is the gift of God. By faith we have been brought into these realities, established, accomplished, open to us by the revelation of God's grace to the new creation, the work of Christ's resurrection. In grammar, these statements, what he's done, quickened, raised up, seated, would be in the what they call the indicative mood. In other words, these point to realities that are established. These are things that are done. These are things that are sure because they already stand complete. It's not a question of will God raise me up. It's not a question of will I come to a place where I'm seated with Christ one day and have some dimension of perspective. No, no. It's up for, to me and to us to figure out what does that mean for me now because it's an established reality. It's in the indicative, if you want to say. It's something that God has indicated he has done. We embrace these three realities, quickening, raised up, seated, as being ours by faith. This indicative reality is what we are to live in and to live by. These things that are established are what we are to key off of. Now, we tend to regard this reality, this indicative reality, as something done in the past. Even with our own experience. When were you saved? Well, we immediately look to some point in the past. <clears throat> but clearly these things have not been fully fleshed out. We don't see ourselves as being fully uh, raised up with Christ. We see ourselves quickened, but then we read scriptures that talk about the fact that one day our very bodies are going to be transformed. Now that's quickening. You know, you can take an old slow guy and make him into something different. That is a quickening power that, that is more than just the quickening of new life inside. We don't know what it is to be seated with, with Christ at the right hand of God, and yet we have that position now. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? Use your imagination. There must be a place from which we can draw perspective there must be a place, a seat of, of degree of authority that we must have from that. These are the things that God has already established us in, and yet we sometimes, the only part we even think about is when I was quickened way back then and when I was baptized. And that's where we, that's kind of where we see it. Indicative reality is the truth of our present condition in Christ, our standing and our assurance of life, strength, and understanding that it gives us. We must continually live in this indicative reality. And these aren't the, this isn't the only thing that stands complete or established, rather, in Scripture. You come across it all the time. Things that God has done. And he wants us, for our part, to hold those things, 
believe those things, and draw from them the life that is there to be drawn. Does that make sense? You know, I just, I, I don't want to, because now we're going to go on to the second reality. The indicative is one reality we're to hold. The second reality, and the name of my message is two realities, the second reality we are to know and to hold is exemplified in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Paul writes this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Earlier, what I was just talking about in the second chapter, Paul had set out God's amazing salvation work of grace, received by faith and having in it the power to lift us beyond death. Here, he sets out again the same condition he earlier described. The life of alienation from God due to ignorance produced by hardness of heart. And he does so commending the Ephesians. This is always kind of interesting to me. Commending these believers who have experienced the second chapter of, of Ephesians not to behave the way he's describing in the fourth chapter. Apparently we've got a capacity to do that. There's, a, there's something in us that, that, that kind of slips back or can slip back into that. He said, he, excuse me, his argument is this, if you have rightly learned Christ, not just learned about him, but learned by receiving his life inwardly, then you will not live as you used to live. You find the same thing said in 1 John. If people are living the way they used to live, they never really believed in Jesus. I don't care if they sit there all day long telling how they believed in Jesus. Because if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, there's something that begins to grow up in you that you cannot deny and that begins to pervade and to change the way you think and the what you do. And even when you do things wrong, and how many, I know none of you, well, no, I won't say that. We all still do things wrong. That's why First John starts off with, he'll forgive us. The point is, though, that when there is something of the reality of Christ growing up in us, there's something that we no longer continue to do because there's something of Christ growing up in it. His argument, if you have rightly learned Christ, then you will not live as you used to live. You are not simply, now listen to this, you're not simply prohibited from living like that. See, we look at it and say, well, I'm not supposed to do that anymore which is another kind of a veiled way of saying, I really wish I could, but I'm not supposed to do that anymore. Your encounters, your, your, excuse me, you are not simply prohibited to living like that. Your experience with Christ, your encounter of him by faith, your participation in him and his resurrection redefines you, directing you toward a different manner of life. That's what the nature of Christ in us does. Put differently, living in a new creation, reality disallows living the way you always did in the old creation order. He goes on, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The revelation of Christ received by faith brings a radical revolutionary new life, a new creation, as we've been saying, marked at a pivotal point by turning away from the old, old way of life. Almost anyone who has a real experience with Christ or can testify of a changed life, I know I certainly can, oftentimes can look at a particular point where something changed. Sometimes, for you folks that are being baptized, this is the moment where that something really gets changed. You leave something on the other side of the water. And you come out in the newness of life. That's why we do baptism. That's why we celebrate it. And that's why we affirm it. The thing that the, the thing that we want to that we want to do, however, and what is being described here about putting off the old nature, is that isn't just a one-time deal. The way the Greek is, the way the language expresses it, is that it's a it's something you did once, and you now it continues to inform what you do continually. We are continuing to put off the old man. But it goes on to say, but now too, we are also in an ongoing process of being renewed in the spirit of our mind. We put off the one, but we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. We are to be renewed in the roots of our thinking. As deep as it goes, there's something to be changed. How does that begin to be changed? I think one of the ways is when we begin to think on the indicatives. The things God's done. When we drink in deeply from the fact that your power and your regard for me as belonging to you and loved by you, your adoption of me as a son, your redeeming me through the blood of Jesus Christ, your intersecting my life with the great conjunction and quickening me and making me alive, you begin to think on these things and be grateful for these things and invest in these things in your own heart and something can't help but begin to change and be transformed down in the insides. What does it take? Work. Take some effort. But when you invite the Holy Spirit to guide the process, there's a renewing that occurs. There is to be an ongoing action of purposely bringing truth and life to bear that works to transform our thinking. And with this, we're to put on the new man. Again, the tense indicating something once done, we put on Christ at one time, but continuing to direct and inform our actions. We're to be continually putting on the new man that we are in Christ Jesus. The new man is clearly the expression of Christ's nature now living in us. God's nature in us, working through the indwelling Holy Spirit, gives rise to an expression of our own life that is something right and true, pure and free. Jesus doesn't want you to be him. He wants his nature to grow up and be expressed through you. He doesn't want us all to be little clones of him. He wants he created you and he, he you are beloved and you belong because God apparently delights in the way you and I are 
And he wants the nature of Christ dwelling deeply within us and us learning how to put on that nature day by day by day. Fouled up yesterday? That's fine. Put on the new man. Put on the new man. I had a heck of a week. I won't even go into how terrible I was last week. But I, I, there were some things God dealt with me at the fasting, that fasting week. And, and I just had to come back and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to put on the new man. We're going, to go, we're going to go forward in growing and, and, and learning how to serve you. And I didn't do anything. I didn't kill anybody or anything like that. But don't go away, uh, Pastor Duke. You may never see him again. Went up the river. Was the, in, grammar, in, in grammar, actions to be taken by us can be understood as being imperatives. Things we're expected to do, things we're commanded to do. The salvation that we stand in and live by, that is indicative, is to be drawn upon and lived out. In other words, we have the indicative that establishes who we are and how we are, but the imperative requires us to, to step out in that. We've got two realities, and this is all I'm trying to say tonight, two realities. We have the reality of what we are and what God has done for us, this indicative reality of what he's established in our lives, and we have imperatives to live out the life that he's given us and to figure out how that can be lived out and expressed, how that can be transferred and shown to others. I'm going to stop there. I've got some examples of how we, what, basically very quickly, the new man, how does it look? <clears throat> Paul gives a handful of descriptive phrases, again in Ephesians. We're to be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1. We're to walk as children of light. All of these things aren't just little tasks we're supposed to do. They're things that come up out of who we are. They express the reality of God's spirit and what he's worked down in us. We're to walk as children of light. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually again. And we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Ephesians 6, 10. So, indicative, what has God done and what has he done for you? Imperative, how does he want you to live that out? He's very clear in scripture. He wants you to put off the old. He wants you to be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind. And he wants you to put on the new man. All because he quickened, he raised up, and he seated you with Christ. Now, if you're here tonight, and we're going to have our go into baptisms at this point, but I want to pray. If anyone's here tonight... And maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you came down and prayed at an altar. Maybe you had some kind of thing that you believe was, was a, a conversion. But you never have really ever sensed that the, there's been something quickened. Something made new in you. I want to pray. I want to pray that God would bring that home. And bring the consequential change that that produces. So let's just pray here. If any, is there anyone here that, that is in that place that just we can pray and agree with you that God's quickening power would come into your life? Anyone at all?
Lord God, I'm asking that tonight there would just be a deep speaking unto deep, if you will, in these things. Not that they're profound or not that they're supposed they're remote, but they're just things that we need to hear and freshly apply to ourselves too. Now, Lord, bless these, bless us as we listen, bless us as we apply this. And God, I pray that you would bless these that are going to be baptized tonight, that you would bring glory to your name through their lives. And Lord, let this be a moment where their identification with Christ really does bring them into the other side of the grave, the reality of your resurrection power. 